to worship you. Um, Jesus, I thank you that by your spirit you inhabit the praises of your people. And Father, we just want to continue to commit this time to you. In the time that we have to get together this morning, I pray that you would stir our hearts with fresh love, fresh passion, fresh devotion to you, our one and only Savior, who came and did what no one else could do and no one else would do. And Father, I pray that the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, would be high and exalted this morning, and that we would leave here, Lord, having known that we've met with the Prince of Peace, and that his peace would rule and reign in each and every one of our hearts. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Hey, that was a good response. Well done. Very proud of you. Maybe do some more of that this morning. Uh, a couple of things as we get started here. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we will be. But as you're doing that, let me just say um, a couple of special greetings to some people and also just make some mention of some things. First of all, I just want to welcome everybody that usually attends Mercy Hill West. Um, you guys know that over the last little over a year, 14, 15 months or so, uh, we have a second location out west that gathers on Sunday morning, and I just want to remind everybody, and I think it's very fitting for this time of year when there's a lot of different gatherings and get-togethers with different friends and family, is that there is a lot more that makes us a church than just being in the same space for one hour a week, right? What holds us together is, first of all, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we've been united to him, but that we're united together locally by one gospel, by a shared theological uh, uh, doctrinal statement and vision and um, values and the mission that he's given us to make disciples uh, by preaching the gospel. Okay, and so we just want to welcome everybody uh, here this morning that usually attends out west. It's good to good to have the whole family together, so to speak, as we worship together this morning. Second, secondly, want to uh, welcome the kids. Kids, hello, wave at me, kids. Yeah. Good morning. Um, there's, we usually have a little bit over 100 kids or around 100 kids even just here. So I know there's a lot of them in here um, this morning. Uh, we just want to say to you kids and adults, you hear this as well too. Kids, you are not the future of the church. You are the church just as much as any uh, adult or the oldest saint is. And we're glad to have you uh, in the same place worshiping with us this morning. Um, and knowing that the kids are going to be in here this morning, I've shared this with some of you before, but uh, I actually, adults is no problem at all. Like, I can talk to them all day, don't really intimidate me. Kids, totally intimidate me. Um, and it goes back to, literally, this is, this is the true story, very first time I ever kind of spoke publicly after I'd really given my life to the Lord was at a little elementary school in Hutchinson, Kansas. And I was supposed to get up and share my testimony or whatever, and I kid you not, like, I got up and I just froze. I mean, completely froze. I can still picture their little legs. They were so short, their feet didn't even hit the ground, and their little legs were swinging. And I was like, I didn't get much more than my name out, seriously. And so uh, knowing that the kids were going to be in the service, I was like, okay, what do, we, what do we do with the kids in the service? And then I had this happen last week. And this was really, if you'll allow me to say this, this was, I really felt this was like a Holy Spirit thing. It was very encouraging to me. But after the service last week, as many of you know, we were in Romans chapter 16, and one of the primary verses in there is verse 20 where it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And after the service, little Mia, who's six years old, came up to me. And can we get that picture up there of little Mia? That's Mia. I mean, how cute is she? Seriously. Um, but she drew me this picture during the service. And let me just read that real quick. It says, Jesus crushing Satan under my feet. And the top part is her feet, she said. She explained this to me. It's her feet crushing the serpent. And then that's Jesus crushing Satan under his feet. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah, that's totally cool. Um, 
And she told me to do that on, like the Lord was just speaking to her. And so it, it greatly just encouraged me to not mess around this morning, but we're going to get after it theologically uh, because I trust that the Holy Spirit can make the word uh, come alive even to the youngest of hearts. And so Mia, thank you for that. Uh, that was a great encouragement to me um, and for all of us here as well this morning too. And what I hope to do this morning is a little bit of my Christmas gift to you that is that I will try to keep it short, so I'm aiming for 10 minutes with the hope that I can come in around 30 or 35. Um, and that's, that's the honest truth. That's the way I got to roll. Um, uh, but I want us, I, I pray by God's grace that we can just push past all the, the superficial sentimentality of the holiday and honor Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, this morning by asking, not necessarily a deep, but I think a very robust and, and necessary theological question. Um, and I want us to worship him, as the Bible says, with all our heart, all our soul, and all of our mind, all of our mind. We need renewed minds on who our Savior truly is. And I want to start out this morning by looking at two verses in the New Testament, and then just ask this theological question that I'll get to, and then unpack it, or since it's Christmas, maybe I should say unwrap it. But doom, you get that? Never mind. It was funnier in my mind. Um, but unwrap, unwrap uh, uh, the answers to it in, in Isaiah chapter six. But first, the first verse that I want to look at just for a second, Second Corinthians eight nine. I believe we've got this up on the screen. Second Corinthians chapter eight verse nine says this: For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, everybody say that though he was rich, that though he was rich. Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What are these riches? What are these riches that he left behind? The second passage is Philippians chapter 2. Matt read it this morning in the opening. Philippians chapter 2, I'll start in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What, what does it mean when it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself? What, what is he speaking of? And so, and so the question that I want to ask this morning, I'll ask it two different ways, one theologically and then one more just kind of in plain language, if you will. The, the question is this, is what was the state and nature of the pre-incarnate Christ? What was the state and nature of the pre-incarnate Christ? Or to put it more simply, what was Jesus doing before he came in the manger? What was he up to? And I think that Isaiah chapter 6 answers this question. And here's why this question is, is not just a question to satisfy curiosities, but is very helpful to us as we look at it this morning and get the answer from God's word. Is that it's only when we grasp his majesty that we can truly appreciate and imitate his humility. It's only when we grasp his majesty. In other words, all the riches, all the glory that he left as we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's only when we grasp his majesty that we can truly appreciate and imitate his humility. Right before we jump into Isaiah chapter 6, let me just state this plainly up front. We could spend a whole lot of time, again, kind of going into this and explaining this and, and making my argument for it. But let me just say that what we're about to read 
in Isaiah chapter 6 is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. The vision of God that Isaiah sees on his throne, high and lifted up, it is the pre-incarnate Jesus. What that means is this is Jesus before he came as a little baby born in the manger. Like, Eric, prove that to me. Well, okay, I'm glad you asked. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Again, I told you we were going to do some theological work this morning, but we'll get into Isaiah 6 in just a second. But John chapter 12. He's writing here towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and he quotes a couple verses And he says, and I'll just pick it up in John 12, verse 40. It says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6 that we won't get into much this morning, but from the same passage. And then John says this. This is John 12, 41. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And his glory is the glory of Jesus in John's gospel. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. He saw his glory and he spoke of him. And again, I know I'm being a little bit technical already, but I don't want there to be any doubt that what we're about to look at here in Isaiah chapter 6 is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. And again, what was Jesus up to? What was he doing before he came as a baby born in the manger? There's more answers to that than we have time for this morning, but we see four of them here in Isaiah chapter 6. Now I'll just kind of point them out here as we go along, and I'm going to read it and let it unfold as we go. The first thing that the pre-incarnate Christ was doing before he came as a baby born in a manger was that he was ruling with all authority. He was ruling with all authority. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Everything in the initial description of what Isaiah sees here of this vision of the pre-incarnate Christ screams of his authority. His complete sovereign rule over absolutely everything. A throne is where a king sat. To sit on a throne, the throne is a picture. It is a sign of authority. Notice he is seated there. Again, we'll get to maybe this a little bit more as we go through it, but it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was the king of of Judea, and he had reigned for for 52 years. That's a long run. But now he was dead. He was no longer on the throne, but the king of kings was still seated on the throne. And it says that he is high and lifted up. He's seated there. He's not noticed. He's not running. He's not pacing. He's not crying. He's not napping. He is in total control of absolutely everything. He is seated above the death. He is seated higher than any other authority on this earth. Many of you guys know we had the, I had the opportunity to go to Turkey a couple months ago, and um, we visited some historical biblical sites, the city of Ephesus and different cities in the book of Revelation. But we also visited a lot of pagan temples, which were very popular back in that day, obviously. But many of these pagan temples, they would be high up on a mountainside or on a hillside because the idea was that as you approached these false pagan deities that you were supposed to pay some sort of reverence as you made your way up to them. But the king of kings is seated high above all those authorities. All other false gods, all other rulers of men. He is high and lifted up, ruling with all authority. The second thing that we see is not only was he ruling with all authority, but he was receiving angelic worship. 
He was receiving angelic worship. Look at verse 2. It says, above him stood the seraphim. Now, seraphim are like a subset of angelic beings that we read about in the Bible. Their name literally means fiery ones. The root of their name in Hebrew, it literally just means to burn. And there they are, by the throne, burning in all of their flaming holiness. They have six wings, so picture this, or or kids, maybe you want to draw me a picture of this um, during this message today, but they've got six wings, and they are perfectly created to do what God has created to do and where he's placed them. With two, it says, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And I say perfectly fitted because notice if they would have only had four wings, they would have just fallen to the ground. Because it took two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and with two, they flew. And and the idea here is that these mysterious creatures, literally burning with beauty, feel unworthy to look upon this king, and they feel unworthy. And this is the idea of covering their feet. They also feel unworthy to be looked upon by this king. They're on fire (laughs) in some way. And here is all they do. Look at verse 3. They call back and forth to one another. In some sort of, and again, it doesn't necessarily say this, but I think they were in perfect harmony. I think they're, I mean, as beautiful as those songs were that we sing, worship team, you guys did a wonderful job this morning. Um, But I can't even imagine what this must have sounded like. Literally, these angelic voices burning before the throne of God. They called back and forth to one another, and here's all they said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, help me out here a little bit. I know we're not doing like a traditional Christmas play, so let's interact. Or a traditional Christmas play, that is. So let's, let's just interact a little bit. Again, I, I don't know. It says that they called back and forth to one another. So I don't know, did they repeat the whole thing? As I was thinking about it this past week, I was wondering, maybe they just like repeated parts and then they, um, and then they kind of echoed back and forth. So maybe they went, holy, 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 and then one said, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Like, I, I don't know, maybe. But let's try that this morning. I will be one angel, since I have a mic, that's it. And you guys be the other angel, okay? And when I point to you, just repeat what I say, okay? Let's get into it a little bit. We'll do it two times. First time, practice run, because we're always kind of weak, weak sauce on the first time. Okay, but um, here we go. Ready? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The The whole earth is full of his glory. glory. Okay, now bring it. You ready? Now bring it. Kids, help us us out. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it was so loud, verse 4, that the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of those who called. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? What was Jesus doing before he came as a baby born in a manger? He's seated upon his throne, ruling with absolute power Sovereign authority. He is receiving angelic worship. Their worship is accurate. It is theologically precise, and yet it is all-encompassing. Here is the only place in the scripture that you see an attribute of God repeated three times for emphasis. Holy, 
holy, holy. These angels with all the power that they had and, and you know, all the beauty with which they were created as well, they know two things. Number one, God is holy. And then don't miss this as well. Don't miss this as well. God is holy, but then secondly, they're assured of this. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Do you know that that's true this morning? Right now in our world, I know it doesn't look like it, but the whole earth is filled with his glory. See, it didn't seem true in Isaiah's day either. Again, for, from Isaiah's perspective here below on earth, it was the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah's world was, was, was filled with death in the moment that he sees this. That's what it seems to be from the earthly perspective. But folks, this is why this is here and this is why it's so wonderful that we have God's word to turn to and to help us because really whenever we turn to the word of God, what we're trying to do is, is like, it's like the word of God and the Holy Spirit through, through the inspired word. It's like it's calling us, it's calling us up. It's like, come, come on, come on, come on. Get, get up, get up above the death. Get up above the fear. Get up above everything that keeps us bound and makes us, and makes us anxious and worried that we see on this earth. There is a king seated on his throne who is in total authority, and he's not running, he's not napping, he's not sleeping, he's not biting his nails. He's seated on his throne. And absolutely nothing is going to change his plan. This is what I think Paul was getting after when he exhorts the Colossian church in, church in Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, and if you're in Christ, you have been. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Let me just say this, that again from Isaiah's perspective, the run of King Uzziah was fairly good overall. Again, a 52 year run for the most part. He did what God wanted him to do and yet, um, and yet Uzziah's reign comes to a very bad end. Even though he had for the most part done what God wanted him to do, by the very end it says that God struck him with leprosy because of his arrogance and pride of going into the temple which was only at that time and under that covenant reserved for the priests. And God strikes him with, with leprosy and he dies. And so again, it's in this kind of depressing state of the ungodliness of their for the most part godly king that Isaiah is now seated here and he's not sure what's going to happen. But now he sees the king of kings, seated high above it all. The third thing that the pre-incarnate Christ was doing before he came in a manger, he was commanding the armies of heaven. He is called two times in this passage, um, this is very important, in verse 3, where the angels say it, and then Isaiah says it down in verse 5. He is referred to as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Host is the translation of the Hebrew word Sabaoth, which literally means armies. He is the Lord, Yahweh. He is the God of armies. So you guys remember that Chris Tomlin song? This was several years ago. I remember way back in the day, um, sorry, I'm going to tell another story. One of my kids this morning, this isn't in my notes, but sorry guys, it just comes to me sometime. But back when the boys were little, Ephraim, Rowan, and Finn, they all, we lived in this house in Sugar Creek, and they shared one really big bedroom. And Finn was very tiny, and even at that time, um, his older brothers liked to pick on 
him as older brothers like to do. And they, and they would just, like, they would just try to scare him as he went to bed every night. And they would tell him, you know, that there was maybe something <coughs> scary in the closet or something. And I remember um, Finn would come out and he'd be scared. And we would sing this Chris Tomlin song that had just come out at the time. If you guys, I don't know if you guys know this song, remember? Because God of Angel Armies, has anybody ever heard that? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of Angel Armies. He's always on my side. You guys heard that before? Look it up. It's good. But that's, that's accurate. Chris Tomlin got that right from the Bible. He's the Lord of hosts. The God of angel armies. And this is both, it's both comforting and also terrifying to Isaiah. Verse 5, it says, And Isaiah said, Woe is me. And again, you've heard me say this before. It sounds very poetic, very Shakespearean like, but he is literally just going, ah! He is terrified. And then he says, For I am, I'm lost, is what the ESV says. It's the idea in the Hebrew, it literally just means to cease. He's, and, and not like in a good way, like, oh, I'm at peace now. He sees the holiness of God and he's like, I'm, I'm done. The, I think the King James uh, captures an aspect of the, of the Hebrew word very accurately. I believe the King James says, for I am undone. I'm being just literally ripped apart at the seams. It's what he felt like in the midst of the holiness of God. He says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, and here it is again, the Lord of hosts the God of angel armies. It doesn't say this in the text. I obviously don't go, want to go beyond what the text says, but I think just to try to picture it in your mind, Almighty God seated on the throne. I didn't even really touch on this, but just the train of his robe, like just, just the end of his robe, which again was another sign of authority, is filling the temple. It's filling the temple. Um, and I think that probably around him, are all these angel armies ready to do whatever the commander in chief, the Lord of hosts, tells them to do. And Isaiah is absolutely terrified. So Jesus is ruling with all authority. He's receiving angelic worship. He stands ready to command all the armies of heaven at just simply a word. And Isaiah is completely undone. And see if I and I, I know I know that we know this, okay? I know that we know this, but sometimes we know it, but we don't we don't sit in it long enough, folks. Is I think I trust that all of us know that what Jesus came to do and that we celebrate this time of year, he didn't come to give us a sentimental holiday. Amen. As Matt said this morning in the opening, he came to save sinners. And many of us want God to change us. And let me tell you as straightforwardly as I can, he can absolutely change you. He can transform your life. He takes dead people and he makes them alive. He makes people who are addicted and bound by sin and he takes them and he sets them free by the power of his word and the spirit. It ain't no thing for him. It's easy. He does it every day. But that transformation comes, and here's what I want you to get. That transformation comes 
like Isaiah many times, through the process of being undone by his holiness. See, many of us, we want change, but we don't want to be undone. Many of us want change, but we don't want God to change anything in our lives. And folks, that's not the way it works. He is holy. He is the Lord of hosts. And he can do whatever pleases him. And he came and he did this, and this is, this is part of it is that we read at the beginning, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, our sake, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Many of us want God to change us, call us, send us, use us, but we don't want to be undone. But that's exactly what will happen when we encounter his holiness. Fourthly, what we see the pre-incarnate Christ doing here is we see him, and this is where kind of everything kind of culminates. It's very beautiful, a little bit hidden, yet it's there, and it's just absolutely marvelous. We see him removing the sins of men. Removing the sins of men. <coughs> Excuse me, Isaiah is undone. <clears throat> in verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, it says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So apparently... They have six wings, but he's also got hands. So kids put that in the drawing as well. But he takes this coal and he flies to Isaiah. And remember, Isaiah had just said that the primary thing that Isaiah was convicted of in regards to his sin in the presence of God was that he was a man of unclean lips and he lived among a people of unclean lips. And there's a lot that could be said on this. The idea, generally speaking here, is that what was happening in Isaiah's time, something that's happened all over the place, and I would say in America today, is that Isaiah was among a people who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so the, the idea of the lips or the mouth being emphasized here, it's that they continue, oh yeah, yep, we, yep, praise God. Praise God, brother, praise God. Says, isn't, isn't God good? But their hearts were far from him. They weren't really looking to obey him or to do his will. And this had been expressed in a very succinct way through the death of their king, their ruler who also gave lip service to God, but did not walk in the humility that God required. And so they fly to him here, and if you can imagine this, again, I don't, this is a vision, Isaiah's seeing this, and yet there's some sort of, I don't know, sense in which heaven and earth are touching here. But he takes this hot coal, if you can imagine this, or the terror that would come from this, he takes the hot coal and he presses it to his lips. There's almost nothing more sensitive in the human body than the lips. And he takes this hot coal and he presses it on his mouth. And he says, behold, get this, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now this is very strong language. It's very specific language. That guilt is taken away, and the word for atoned there, where he says your sin is atoned for, it literally in other places is translated as forgiven. And so, again, it's this symbol of this hot coal that had been taken from the altar. Now, here's, here's the picture, is that the altar was a place where sacrifices were made. And so whatever was burned there was left over from both the wood that was used to start the fire, but also from the sacrifice itself that had been consumed. And so he takes this coal from the altar, from the sacrifice, and he uses it, and he presses it in on Isaiah to purify him. <clears throat> 
of his sin. And this fire in the temple was burning all the time, just very quickly. Again, I know this is a little bit technical, but I want to make, always make sure that you know I'm not just making this stuff up. In Leviticus chapter 6, verse 12, it says, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it. There were offerings made on this altar every single day. And it shall burn... On it, the fat of the peace offerings as well. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. He emphasizes this point. Let me quote D.A. Carson here, who, maybe, or who I think says this more succinctly with what I'm trying to communicate. D.A. Carson says this, speaking of this passage and this act here of the, the hot coal going to Isaiah's lips. He says, The fiery messenger in burning coal must have at first looked like anything but salvation. Yet, they came from the place of sacrifice and spoke the language of atonement and forgiveness. The live coal symbolizes the total significance of the altar from which it came. That the penalty of sin was paid by a substitute offered on that altar in the sinner's place. The symbol applied to Isaiah's lips assures him of personal forgiveness. And so get the picture here that Jesus, ruling with all authority, receiving angelic worship, commanding the armies of heaven, what will he do with sinful humanity? He is always, from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell, what he's been doing is he's been making a way of salvation. Back in the Levitical priesthood and all that, it was all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would come not upon the altar but upon the cross. And Jesus Christ came. It's the whole reason why we celebrate him coming and being born in a manger because he left all these riches of heaven behind, brother and sister. (laughs) And he came and he did once for all what needed to be done. The writer of Hebrews picks this up Excuse me again. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then though the great, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Again, that was the old altar that, that perhaps Isaiah saw. But by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? Do you understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Is that Isaiah needed this coal from the altar to purge and to purify his lips? Dear friends, the the answer to our sin is that the Holy Spirit would take the cross of Christ and sear our souls with it and see what Jesus Christ did for us there. That he died upon the cross, the death that you and I deserved, and he took upon himself the fiery wrath of God on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit comes to press that 
into our hearts this morning. And if you're here this morning and you do not know what would happen to you today if you died, or not just today, or hopefully many years in the future, it does not matter. It is coming for each and every single one of us. Where will you spend eternity? There is only one way to get there. And it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The only way to stand before an almighty, holy God and to come away with any semblance of still being held together and not being completely destroyed is to have come under and be covered by the blood of Christ for your sins. It is the only answer and it is only received by faith. It is only received by faith. It's not by faith plus being a good Christian. It's not by faith plus coming, plus coming to a Christmas service. It's not by faith and putting some money in the back in the offering. It's not by faith in being a partner at Mercy Hill Church. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Amen? He did it all. Isaiah's only hope was that in that moment for the seraphim to take that coal from the altar and to purify his lips, our only hope, your only hope this morning is that the Holy Spirit might take the message of the cross and press it into your soul and make you come alive. It should take our hearts, and worship team, you can come up, and we're going to begin to close. I did pretty good this morning, by the way. Can I get an amen? Come on, somebody. It should take our hearts and our minds to the very breaking point to fathom that the pre-incarnate Christ, ruling with all authority upon his throne, receiving angelic worship, and commanding the armies of heaven, would choose not to count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather to make himself nothing. And one day to step down off the throne and be willing to come as a little baby, born in a manger, and offer himself as a sacrifice upon the cross. Again, not to give us a sentimental holiday, but rather to create for himself a blood-bought people who say, like Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. And that's exactly what he does after the seraphim comes and purifies him. Verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Dear friends, that's the only response to the holiness of God. It's the only response when we see the glory and the majesty of the pre-incarnate Christ is to appreciate and to imitate his humility in being willing to do whatever. See, that's, that's the question that we asked at the beginning, or, or, or rather, I guess, the answer as to why this is important. That if we grasp his majesty, will we imitate his humility? And I don't know, Avery, are you back there? I don't know if you can put Philippians back up there on the screen real quick for me, buddy, and we'll wrap up. And I just want to bring it home just very practically, thinking about just this one application, okay? And that is the exhortation that Paul gives to the church in Philippi from that passage that I read earlier, he goes into what's known as this kenosis passage, this idea of God emptying himself. It's a very famous passage of Scripture in all the ways that Christ humbled himself. But the whole point is verse 5. This is what he's aiming at. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not just that he wants them to do something, it's that he wants them to be something different. And what he's aiming at here is be, be humble. If, if Christ 
left all this to come to earth to save us. Dear friend, I don't know why we get stuck on certain things that we feel like we need to give up as if it's a sacrifice. There's nothing. And if there's one thing, I I know this, that this time of year, again, I hope that it's filled with joy. I hope it's filled with peace. I also know just from being around on this planet for 42 years and seeing it in my own life and also the lives of many other people, as I'm sure you have, is that it's not always a season of peace. Many times it's a season of being reminded of relationships that are broken and that are hurt. And please hear me, I know that the situations are complex and they're varied and I I in no way want to try to give simplistic answers to very complex hurt and pain in situations. However, I do know this. I know that if every person would look at what Jesus did for us, and have this same mind in themselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself nothing. In other words, if they would clothe themselves with this type of humility, that peace and joy and reconciliation that we long for amongst ourselves, we'd be much closer, wouldn't we? And so thank Jesus for all that he has done, If you don't know him as your savior, I invite you to do that right now. I I won't lead you in a prayer because I don't think I have to. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can right now, right where you sit in the quietness of your heart, you can ask Jesus to come and to remove your sins. Dear friend, I know it's Christmas, but I... I'm going to speak the truth of the word of God no matter what, and that is that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible's very clear that the wrath of God is against you. But he's made a way for you to be purified and for that wrath not to consume you, but rather to make you whole. And that is through faith in the cross of Christ. So please do that. And for those of us who claim that we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, may we clothe ourselves with the humility that he modeled for us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. We love you. We thank you that we get to worship you together here in this place this morning. Lord, I pray that through the rest of this season, as we look upon maybe nativity scenes or pictures of wise men or shepherds or angels or stars, and we think about the Christmas scene that many of us are familiar with, Lord, this time of year, I pray that we would also be reminded of what you left to come to that. And Lord, I pray that your humility would break our hearts. Just break our hearts, Lord. We need you so much. And Father, I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would grant us the ability in Christ Jesus to just look away from self, look away from our own pain, look away from our own need, not that you don't care, but to look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just take your word and you'd come to us and sear our souls in a way that would purify us and be helpful. We thank you for the privilege of being created to sing to you. We thank you that we are perfectly fitted in Christ Jesus 
to worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's our joy to do so now. In Christ's name, amen. You guys stand with us.